This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru, and this is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hello. How's it going? It's going well. Excellent. Today we have a special guest with us. We have Preston Neal Jones, who wrote the book Return to Tomorrow, which is an oral history of the motion picture. How's it going, Preston? Uh, just fine, thanks. You, you too, I hope. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, this book, oh, it's my pleasure. This book is is amazing. I mean, I I finally got it. You know, it was the 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 first printing sold out like instantly, right? It was it was hard to get get your hands on it for a while there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was very happy that we didn't even have a launch, and in fact, we we, we still haven't had an official launch. But the book. Uh, sold out just on the strength of the announcement uh, so uh, that was very encouraging yeah. i was hoping all these years that when the people who had been patient for decades uh, who knew that the manuscript existed uh, uh, when they finally got their hands on it they wouldn't be disappointed and say oh i waited 40 years for this so uh, <laughs> i was very glad that people seem to be responding very well to it not only in in purchasing it but in the things that they're saying about it so no, yeah, I mean, we we were just talking about how um, last night I was flipping through it, and, you know, I got home from work, it was pretty late at night, and I'm just, like, you know, thinking, like, oh, I'm going to just skim a little bit of this and see what's going on, and then I look at my clock, and, like, two hours have passed, and I'm like, whoa, you know, it's it really just <laughs> flies by. Well, that's the way I wrote it. Uh, I looked at the clock, and suddenly 40 years had passed. <laughs> yep yep i guess that's the way it works sometimes but it's well worth the wait for sure and i know like a lot of our listeners you know we have a forum um on on the internet and when the book was first announced everyone was like what what oh my god i have to have to check that out (laughs) and uh now we're finally getting to see it it's great well, uh, the cat had been out of the bag for a long while because, well, should we go into, should we explain for those who may not know about the origin of the book and yeah. with Cinefantastique and all of that? Absolutely. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, originally, this uh, whole project was to be a special double issue of the late lamented Cinefantastique magazine, uh, which had done uh, special issues about Close Encounters and Star Wars and when uh, Star Trek motion picture was imminent, it was natural that they would want to do one for that as well. And uh, so uh, I researched it, I wrote it, uh, and it was announced in the magazine. It was even used uh, to promote uh, subscriptions one year. Uh, but uh, in the event, for reasons known uh, but to God at this point, uh, it was never really uh, published uh, in the magazine. And so uh, over the years, uh, because the word had gotten out, uh, occasionally I would get uh, 
the indication that people knew about it and that they'd love to see it. Uh, when somebody would recognize my name on a message board, for instance, they'd say, hey, are you the Preston Neil Jones who? And uh, can and when can we finally see that manuscript? And in the meantime, I did a little mini essay uh, explaining all of this history uh, on the website about all the treks that never were. And I'm glad that the never were uh, finally is in my case. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, I mean, this was originally going to be like a double-sized magazine, which, by the way, I'm sorry, before we go any further, I'm reading the book. Certainly. I'm reading the book, and, you know, it's saying, you know, Cinefantastique, which obviously I'm, I'm familiar with and everything, and and it's saying like, oh, its origins exist, you know, in uh, a little, you know, suburb of Chicago, blah, 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 and then you start talking about Oak Park, Illinois, and I'm like, what? That's where I've lived my entire life and in doing research from it and everything like I'm pretty sure that I lived like a couple blocks away from Fred Clark, like basically most of my life had wow. no had no idea whatsoever that, you know, I worked in a comic <laughs> book store. I would read Cinefantastic because we'd have all the back issues and everything. I'd read it there <laughs> while I was at work. And it, at no point was I aware that all of this was happening like a block away from from where I was sitting. But Anyway, I just thought probably that was in a nondescript house. Uh, <laughs> it didn't look like a, a mammoth publishing corporation or anything like it. I guess this is a real shoestring operation, yeah. labor of love. Yeah, but producing great work nonetheless. So, how did this this book, which originally was going to be a a double sized magazine, how does that become? A 650-page book. Yeah. How big... I've not ha had a Cinefantastic magazine. How big are Cinef <laughs> were Cinefantastic magazines? What did I miss? Well, he here's the deal. <laughs> First of all, uh, as I explained in the introduction to the book, which I title Introduction or Confessions of a Non-Trekker, I always loved fantasy, science fiction, and horror films, but I had never been particularly a Trek fan. And when I got the assignment from Fred Clark. I had done, uh, that was the editor, publisher, Cinefantastic. Uh, I uh, had done uh, some uh, pieces that had been printed and or we had gotten along well. Uh, and he called me one day from Oak Park. I live in Hollywood. And he offered me uh, the opportunity to do the, the next special issue on Star Trek. And I thought to myself, I can get to meet and talk to Robert Wise. I can talk to Jerry Goldsmith. I can talk to Isaac Asimov. I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then once that die was cast, I went to all my friends who were Trekkers. I said, look, you're the audience. I'm going to be writing this, so I want to be sure to give you what you'll hope to see and find there. So what should I be sure to, uh, to put in this uh, opus? And they all said the same thing. They said, detail, minutia, spare us nothing for fear it will be considered too trivial. So that's one reason why it's a long manuscript. <laughs> it's also long because, uh, well, the, the uh, previous special issues on uh, Close Encounters in Star Wars had uh, consisted of about, on the average, 20 interviews, you know, Q&A, Q&A, and uh, lavish illustrations in Cinefantastique's manner. And uh, when I started getting into it, I don't know if it's because I was getting such good uh, material or uh, 
because uh, Fred was really was a trekker and a trek enthusiast, but uh, he was happy with everybody that I was reaching. He said, oh, you got an interview with him. Well, uh, that's great. Who else can you get an interview with? And uh, interview more people and more people and more people. So uh, in uh, bottom line, I ended up interviewing 60 people. Uh, And uh, I, the way I put this material together, I don't do Q and A uh, if I can help it. Uh, my previous book, I don't know if you've heard of it, is called Heaven and Hell to Play with, the filming of the Night of the Hunter. And there, I only had uh, twelve people to talk to because it was a much older movie, and there simply weren't that many people around who had been involved with it when I was doing my research in the seventies. Uh, but what I did was I took all the Q and A transcripts. And I removed my cues and just printed the A's in what I call a montage of memory, as if you were sitting in a roundtable discussion with all of these people, and they take turns pitching in on sharing their memories of each particular part of the story. Uh, and it's the same thing with Star Trek, the Star Trek book, Return to Tomorrow, uh, only here it's a round-robin discussion with about 60 people. And uh, so it takes more time to put a book together this way, but I think it's much more interesting for the reader and really tells more of a story uh, as a story. And uh, so uh, those are really the main reasons why I ended up writing so much. Uh, And uh, the actual typescript manuscript, the typed manuscript, when I finally finished it and sent the last part of it off to uh, Fred, totaled about 1,880 pages. Uh, so I was just relieved that it could be uh, put into one uh, book. Uh, years ago, uh, there was a, an attempt which didn't pan out to publish uh, the book, and the publisher I was dealing with then was planning on doing it as three volumes, really, divided naturally into the three sections of the book, pre-production, production and post-production. In any event, uh, I dare say that uh, there's, I'm to me, the potential audience for the book is not only the Trekkers, but anybody who's a serious film or a Hollywood historian who might be interested in that period, because I honestly don't think there's been any uh, major studio mega production which has ever been examined in as much detail as this one has by virtue of all the people that I talked to and all that they shared with me. But that's the last time I'll pat myself on the back during the interview. Stop me if you if you catch me trying it again. Well, no, but I mean it's it's definitely true, and I mean I think part of it is you know even unlike you know your your Night of the Hunter book, it's like this is all um, stuff that was was done or like uh, interviews which were were um, you know recorded while the movie was actually being made right i mean yeah it's really cool you were there i'm sorry i i I forgot that to mention that when i was talking about the difference between the two books um i got to talk to these people while the film was in post-production uh so the actors had only recently finished their work and the people uh, who were doing effects work uh, were still um, deeply into it uh and there were a lot of people that i couldn't talk to until after uh, the post-production was uh, finished. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, that was another thing that was driving poor Fred Clark nuts. It became very clear that the, unlike the other two uh, magazines, 
Uh, this one, there was no way that this one could make it into the newsstands in time to coincide with the release of the film. Yeah, it was just too big. So, so since you were there, I mean, uh, th- th- one of the things which I love about the book is that it really does sort of take the perspective of 1980 or, or you know 1981, and um, that to me is almost more telling than uh, what is being said in terms of like the the specific information you know you're getting basically people's attitudes towards the film and towards what they're doing and and their perspective is um to me almost more interesting than than what it is that they're actually saying well i'm that's very interesting to me to hear uh certainly i took that perspective because it was written at that time yeah uh so it, it is what it is it's sort of like a time capsule if you will of what these people thought and felt and what they had done at that moment in, in their lives. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really cool. I mean, Drew and I, we, we always, we, we have people on like, uh, you know, Larry Nemechek or, or, you know, people who were fans mm-hmm. of Star Trek from, from the beginning. And we say like, what was it like? What was it like to, to be there in 1979? And, you know, here you don't have that distortion of, of time to, to sort of, uh, ruin what what was actually going on it's it's really awesome well thank you very much i'm glad we left it as is and didn't uh, monkey with it when i say me i want to give all thanks to taylor white of creature features uh, the guardian angel finally made this uh, happen yeah it's it's great and, and my and, publisher and and even though it is disappointing that you know it, it didn't exist as a as a magazine back then i mean the fact that we have such an expanded version now is really really cool and beneficial. Yes, it is longer than uh, the magazine that could have been. Uh, incidentally, I also want to give a shout out to Lucas Kendall, who was instrumental in uh, getting me and Taylor White together. And uh, Lucas has written a perfect introduction and postlude, if you will, uh, to the book to put it in the kind of perspective uh, that uh, we're talking about. Yeah. So, so when you were there, you, you said you started uh, working on it while the movie was in post-production. How much access did you have to um, what what had already come before? I mean, did they give you a script or any any? did they show you any footage or how, how did that go? Well, uh, basically, uh, there was the Paramount Publicity Department, who naturally were... Uh, uh, very friendly to anybody who said we're going to do print a lot about your movie. Uh, so uh, they all gave me a complete open sesame. Uh, they arranged the first interviews for me. Uh, and uh, they were with a couple of the actors and a couple of the people whose uh, technical people whose work had been done pre-production and during production who were therefore more free to sit down and talk with me. And then uh, many times the people that I would talk with, uh, uh, it really was a grew-like topsy situation. They say, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. Let me call them and set it up for you. And, uh, oh, uh, gosh, uh, you really need to know about this, but somebody better than me can tell you about that. And so one person would lead to another person and another person. Uh, in fact, it was uh, the uh, uh, effects uh, specialist, Richard Urisich, who uh, set up the interview for me with uh, the uh, fellow whose credit on the main titles reads uh, uh, executive in charge of production, uh, a fellow named Jeffrey Katzenberg. Mm. 
this was uh, his first big uh, assignment uh, in his career, I guess. And uh, I remember uh, when uh, Richard and I were in the anteroom waiting to go in to have uh, the uh, the interview, uh, Richard saying to me, uh, listen, pay attention to whatever this guy says to you, Preston, because one day he's going to be head of the studio. <laughs> oh, he totally called it. <laughs> yeah, yes. And interestingly... Of all the 60 people that were interviewed uh, for this book, uh, and I ought to give a parenthetical thank you to a lady named Kay Millam Anderson, who, when I was uh, in uh, home on a family emergency, did six of the 60 interviews. Uh, of all the 60 people that uh, I interviewed, uh, Mr. Katzenberg was the only one who insisted that he did not want to be tape recorded. So I had to oh. just make notes and uh, when I and rush home as quickly as I could and write down like mad while it was still fresh in my memory everything uh, that he had told me. <laughs> I guess I guess that that seems like kind of an executive thing to do, <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, you know, you you say in the book in your introduction that you're not a Trekkie, and uh, we'll we'll get to that in a second. But um, I guess going back a little bit. Um, how, how did you get your start in journalism? I mean, like what, what led to this, to this point? I, I know that you said that, you know, you were associated with, you know, creature features and everything, but wh where is your, your sort of interest in, in film or, or whatever? Where does that come well, from? Well, it's just a, a lifelong, uh, uh, just been a theatrical kind of, uh, little boy all my life. And, uh, once I got to a certain age and shock theater came on TV, I became what's now known as a monster kid. And uh, so it's, it's just all a love of movies, a love of writing, a love of books. It's just uh, where my heart is, home, and where, which, of course, is where home is. Yeah. So you say you're not a Trekkie. Um, and I know that there were... I have to interrupt you here. This is twice in a minute. You've said the word, the T word, and I've been bending over backwards ever since I started interviewing people 40 years ago. But then when they were telling me, oh, don't say Trekkie, you say Trekker, it's much more respectful. And here you are a Trekker saying Trekkie. So I mean, have I been too delicate all the, all these years or what? what's the deal That's here? an old fight that, that. We've we've evolved beyond that point. <laughs> um, basically, yeah, th that's something that you know I think was was people from say I don't know the seventies or the eighties when Trekkie was used as you know sort of a, a bad word. You know, um, they were trying to take it back or whatever, and and now it's gotten to the point where Trekkies have just embraced it and they're like, yeah, you know what, we're Trekkies. You know, deal with it. And and the ones that the, the ones that still have a problem with it, I think, are the ones who um, they're going to have a problem with anything, no matter what. So you know. <laughs> well, I hope that at least they date that nobody has a problem with it. Certainly, uh, the world knows that uh, it's like a nation. There are enough uh, of the, of them, whatever you would call them, all over the world by now. I don't think there's a country uh, that would be stupid enough to go to war against them. <laughs> This is true. This is true. Um, we're certainly in, in large numbers. But as someone who is not a Trekker or Trekkie or whatever you want to call it, um, what what do you think about the movie? I mean, it, it's it's one of those things where like everyone who's listening to this probably is a fan of the franchise and everything. And it's interesting to hear the perspective of a movie from someone who's not fully 
you know, invested uh, in that that particular uh, niche? Gosh, um, when the, a few times in my life I've worked on the cruise of movies, and it's been very difficult to uh, be able to give an honest answer to that question when it's a movie that I've worked on, because uh, I have no objectivity, and uh, and I, I'll never know how the film might have worked on me if I hadn't read drafts of the script, or if, uh, in the cases where I've been on the action crew during shooting, if I, you know, seeing things being shot and put together. Uh, so with that as a caveat, um, let's just say that um, uh, I think that uh, the uh, the film uh, had I came, not being a trekker, I came to appreciate the ethos, if you will, of what the uh, uh, the show was about in terms of its uh, hope and optimism for the future and for humankind as a as a self-improvable species and and all of that informed I think that was a lovely spirit to inform any movie and I think that the film captured that um, I uh, there was a certain uh, problem of length and pacing and uh, uh, sometimes even inertia, it felt to me, uh, watching it that first time of the day that uh, it opened. Uh, and uh, you have to bear in mind, I guess everybody who's listening to this uh, uh, knows uh, that uh, the the film was, it was beset by a demon all during its creation, the demon being the fact that Paramount had contracted with the uh, theater owners to have the film to them by December 7th, 1979. And uh, even though Gene Roddenberry and Robert Wise begged uh, with them to give him, to give them more time to work on it, uh, there was just no, it was just immutable. And uh, so they were actually working, the last shot went of effects went into the can uh, maybe five or six days before the film had to open. And uh, Wise uh, carried a print of it uh, <laughs> on the airplane that he took to Washington, D.C. on the evening of the 6th, where the film had its gala premiere at, at NASA. And uh, when uh, the uh, film uh, was over and people were applauding, uh, Wise turned to Jeffrey Katzenberg and said, well, not bad for a first sneak preview. <laughs> Uh, the uh, grim joke being, of course, that unlike a normal movie where you have a sneak preview and several of them, so you have time to tweak it and recut it and, and reshape it, ready or not, she launches. Uh, whatever shape it was in that night, it was the same shape everybody was going to see it around the world uh, the next morning. Uh, consequently, uh, I have to say, I think more highly of the uh, the director's cut, which has been out on video, uh, for a few years now, uh, because uh, uh, especially having read those drafts of the script, uh, there were things that I that were in the, some of the drafts I read that I felt uh, that I missed when I saw the film that I thought would have strengthened the theme and uh, uh, the characterization. And I think that if they hadn't been 
so nose to the grindstone, hellbent for leather to get it into the theater by that date that uh, they might not have been so quick to dispense with some of these things or they would have had time to put them back in. Uh, I, most of those uh, feelings that I had have uh, been uh, dealt with uh, beneficially in, in the director's cut. All, uh, most, if not all, of the lines that I missed are back there, and there's more of a through line, and it's, it's a little, and the, the pacing is better uh, overall. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm not giving you too long a question. This is no, off no. the top of my head as to what I think about the the, the picture. Um, I felt, uh, frankly, that uh, well, uh, the the last line of my text uh, is uh, somebody at Paramount uh, when it was still. Uh, uh, a question whether there would be a sequel or not, and finally it was determined that there would be uh, someone at Paramount uh, w- was uh, heard to say, we're going to keep doing it till we get it right. I felt that they got it right uh, the second uh, time at bat uh, with the Wrath of Khan, um, that uh, that uh, just uh, it was more of an adventure, if you will, um, uh, but uh, there, but there's so many things that I do. I, I guess uh, for me, I appreciate more the individual elements, uh, certain things in uh, uh, the, the motion picture uh, than uh, the overall. Certainly, uh, the best thing in it—I uh, shouldn't say certainly—but uh, to many people's thinking, including mine, the the best single element in the film uh, is Jerry Goldsmith's score, which is just a masterpiece. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. like so much in the film, amazing that it was as good as it was, considering the conditions under which it was created. Uh, but uh, I like uh, just the, the the reunion factor uh, of uh, seeing. Uh, uh, the, the crew together, and, and I like the, uh, seeing uh, the, uh, the the whole uh, outer space element, which was something that Robert Wise said had appealed to him. Uh, one of the things that drew him into the film, because he had done a couple of science fiction classics, of course, The Day the Earth Stood Still and The Andromeda Strain, but they had all been uh, earthbound. Uh, but uh, certainly, this film was uh, was not earthbound. Uh, and so certain individual scenes uh, just as drama work uh, well for me. Uh, uh, well, anyway, that's, uh, as I say, that off the top of my head, uh, that's, uh, those are the words that come out when you ask me what I think of the film. No, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I think it echoes uh, the feelings of a lot of uh, people, you know, Trekkies and, and non-Trekkies alike. Um Having known the history, like when when you were there, you know, you, you, you're saying that you read the script and there was a lot of stuff in it that you were kind of missing. That was scripts, plural. Scripts, yes. <laughs> um, and bear in mind that uh, there was never any really one solid shooting script. Uh, there was never a budget for the film, which is just incredible considering the mega millions of dollars that were spent on it because they never had a solid finished script when they had to rush into production again, because of that December 7th starting date. Yeah. It's like, it was constantly racing the clock. I, I love that picture where they have the warehouse full of, of prints, you know, just sitting there waiting to go. Mm. It's uh, yeah. Well, you could have a warehouse just as big with drafts of the script. <laughs> Um, you may know that when the revision comes in on a script while they're in production, uh, it's printed on colored paper. 
so when it's inserted into everybody's copy of the script, they can differentiate. Uh, well, uh, everybody's script must have looked like Finian's Rainbow uh, by the time they were shooting the film. There were things, usually it'll say the date of a revision at the, at the corner of a page. Uh, uh, here they were typing in not only the date, but the time of day, because sometimes on one day more than one version of the scene would be written and put into the script. It was just an incredible situation. That's crazy. And it's amazing that the film got made at all. And uh, I'm I'm very pleased that uh, without my having to say so, uh, the reaction I'm getting from people is very clear that they they get it, that if uh, Robert Wise hadn't been the director, the picture might not have been made at all. It might not have made that December 9th date in any condition. So he's really the hero of the piece that he hung all hung in and kept all this uh, from falling apart and and that's that's one of the interesting things to me uh, about the book and 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 why i i am responding to it so much is like you know a lot of people you know back before things like this existed uh they you know watch the movie and I, I think this is a thing which generally happens with movies where you watch the movie and if you don't like it you tend to assign blame and oftentimes the blame is assigned to the director and um, I'll freely admit that, you know, growing up as a kid who knew nothing about, you know, the history of these projects, I would do that. And, you know, reading this, you see that, no, um, you know, it is it isn't Robert Wise's fault by any stretch of the imagination. And that I mean, logically thinking about it, that makes sense, seeing as how he's won like Oscars and stuff. And it really is kind of sad. And one of the things which I always thought was very, very strange uh, or ironic, I guess, is that, you know, they did not give the guy who edited Citizen Kane time to finish editing this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The virtue of uh, being able to do an oral history book. Uh, see, there's so many books of criticism out there about films and uh, uh, academic theory, and my feeling has always been, but this is, we can have thousands of years to write those kinds of books. This is the only chance we're ever going to have to talk to the people who are actually making these movies, so that's why I've tried to contribute my widow's might, as it were, to that, uh, that field. And uh, I think that uh, from my book, uh, the people who uh, aren't very fond of the film uh, can at least uh, see what went into it and uh, have an understanding of why, for better or for worse, it is what it is. And I think that the people who do like the film, by the same token, can uh, see uh, why uh, why the good stuff is in there and what they were trying to achieve and what they were able to achieve uh, uh, and and all of that, I think that comes uh, through very clearly. Yeah, I hope so. Anyway. Oh, for sure. Um, now, I mean, this this movie, you know, kind of building on that, it it has a lot of stigma. Oh, incidentally, to I'm sorry. I I just wanted to add parenthetically that when the book was first announced, I was in fact pleasantly surprised uh, to. Uh, uh, read uh, some of the excited responses on the internet uh, from people who it, it turns out really love the film. Oh, yeah. And uh, that, that sort of did my heart good, uh, even though I had nothing to do uh, with making it. I just knew how incredibly hard everybody uh, worked on it. And uh, I think that uh, maybe this should be the punchline for your, your question about what do I think of the film. Uh, I think that in many ways... Uh, 
for all its uh, flaws, its virtues shine brighter than ever with the passage of time. Uh, when you, especially when you look at all the juvenilia, which is out there, this was uh, a real attempt at grown-up science fiction on the screen in a big way. No, yeah, that's definitely true. And you know, there there is, I, I think, there are a lot of people who who love this movie. Uh, that's that's uh, um, undeniable. And I, I think that you know, naturally, like looking at it back then, and like reading, you know, the the end of your book where. You have a lot of the uh, people who worked on it giving their responses to to seeing the movie. You know, it, it kind of echoes, I think, the way that the general public tends to respond to these things where, mm. you know, it's kind of like a gut reaction. But then after a while, you know, whether it's 30 years or whatever, you get people who are saying like, no, guys, there's a lot going on beneath the surface. You're just not seeing it. And that stuff mm. kind of starts to to shine through. And I think that the director's cut really helps as well because it makes it a much more watchable movie. Yeah. But with that being said, there still are a number of people who really do not like this movie. And there's there's a certain um, amount of stigma attached to it. And I'm wondering... Star Trek, the lifeless picture. There you go. Yeah. The slow motion picture, the motionless picture. The motionless picture. picture. The motionless picture. That's it. I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. Shame yeah. on me for, for telling a joke punchline wrong. <laughs> the cardinal sin. But with all that, you know, I mean, we just talked about the whole, you know, Robert Wise thing. And as someone who is intimately familiar with uh, the production of this movie, uh what are some of the biggest uh, common misconceptions that uh, you hear about it um, in regards to the finished product? Hmm. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, that's not really a, a question that's easy for me to answer because, again, going back to reading the reactions uh, on the Internet from people, this time people who, uh, this was later on when people started to read the book, and they were talking about how, well, now that I, I'm reading this book, I can see clearly what was murky before, or or this corrects uh, uh, misimpression, or this uh, tells the truth behind a story we were always getting wrong. Uh, but I can't have that reaction because I really wasn't aware of all the myths and the murk and the misconceptions uh, and, and the rumors and, and the legends uh, that had arisen uh, over time. I only knew what I was dealing with, uh, the nuts and bolts that people were giving me uh, you know, uh, from the horse's mouth. Um, so, uh, so I really don't have much of an answer uh, to that question unless you want to ask about some specific uh, misunderstandings or myths or falsehoods or, or whatever. Yeah, I guess I don't have anything really in mind. I was just wondering if maybe there were some things which you had heard over the years where you were just like, every time you hear it, you're just like, no, guys, that's wrong. Come on, guys, you're getting that wrong. Hmm. Well, I don't know. It sounds like it sounds like we've got it pretty right that, you know, its biggest flaw was the fact that it was done too fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think at this point we ought to mention, uh, uh, for anybody who may not have read uh, the book yet, uh, even even a lot of them probably already know uh, about this. Uh, the, one of the, uh, the biggest obstacles the film had to overcome uh, was just miraculous that they were able to was the fact that they had a special effects crew, which uh, they let go of uh, with a little less than a year 
before the film had to open on that December 9th date. And so they had to do two years work in one year's time uh, to create the, the effects for this massive big screen picture, which is why they ended up with two of the special effects giants, uh, Mr. Trumbull and Mr. Dykstra, each with his own crew and his own uh, offsite studio facility, working like mad, literally around the clock, uh, cots for people to sleep on, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's why they were working right up until days before the film had to open. It, it's it's crazy. I mean, that seems to be like a constant in Star Trek going all the way back to the original series is trying to find people who can do the effects. But uh, <laughs> but the end result, I, I think, yeah. is is uh, is good. I mean, the effects in the movie are, are actually very impressive. Um, well, thank God. That's why I say it was a miracle. Yeah. Uh, just like it's a miracle that uh, that the score is as good as it uh, was. Uh, uh, I mean, the film composer, even when he's not given much time to work, uh, you know, just a few weeks in many cases uh, to do his job, but at least he's got a film to work with. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, they kept pulling the rug out from under him. Says, "No, no, we're, we're we haven't got that yet, or we're taking that out and we're putting it into another part of the picture now." <laughs> so uh, he just really had to work uh, on the fly. And uh, but uh, when you have people, that, that's why you know, they they got the best people for the job: Goldsmith, Dykstra, Trumbull. These are the masters of their craft, and they needed it to be. Yeah, and that score is truly one of the best in movie history. It's it's amazing. Well. I have one last question for you. Um, I, you know, oh, we finished so soon. <laughs> well, unless, I mean, hey, if there's more, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, there's 670 pages. There, there is, there is. And we'll have to have you back once once we've had a chance to, to dig through it and, and get really deep into the history of this, this movie. But There you go. That's, that's an idea. That's a plan. But the way that these things work, I mean, naturally, you're kind of thrown into them and you don't necessarily get to choose your subjects all the time. So my question is, if you could go back in history and do do this project for any movie you could throughout throughout the history of film, what what would it be? Well, uh, it would be a film you probably have never heard of. Called "The Sky's the Limit," hmm. which was uh, released in 1943. It was a musical starring Fred Astaire and Joan Leslie, with a score by Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer. It's where we get "Make It One for My Baby" and "One More for the Road" comes from, hmm. and it's my favorite Astaire picture, and a highly unusual uh, picture not only for him but e- even for movies. Uh, at that time, it, it was a home front story set during wartime, and uh, it had many serious uh, undertones uh, to it. Uh, I remember uh, somebody uh, at the, the L.A. County Museum at a screening of it one time uh, uh, introduced it as the world's first film noir musical. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there's there's something um, I, I would there's something. Uh, unique about the uh, the whole presentation the, the performances uh, which are much more loose uh, than you would get uh, uh, in a standard film of that time and all all of these things make it so unusual i would l- just love to know 
why it is what it is. How did it get that unusual tone? Because it, it, like Night of the Hunter, there's really no other movie like it, which is uh, one of the things that uh, is important uh, as a draw to me when I'm going to be writing about something. I actually hope to uh, do a study of the film, but it's most of it's going to have to be uh, archival, unfortunately. Um, I'm kicking myself. I thought I've been thinking for a long time what, when I was researching Hunter, why wasn't I also researching this film? But I guess I just loved it so much I took it for granted. <laughs> I, huh. You're right. I had never heard of that movie, but now I, you, you sold me on it. I definitely need to see that. That sounds really intriguing. Yeah. Well, I hope you like it. Yeah. So, so the book is available on uh, the Creature Features website right now, right? And and I believe it is also uh, starting to be available at good old Amazon. Yeah, that's where I got it from, actually. Um, through, there you go. Through Creature Features. Um, but yeah, I, I bought it off of Amazon myself. But uh, Well, maybe you'll be the first one to write or read a review. <laughs> no one's written a review about it? What? Oh, wow. Last I heard. I haven't looked for a while, but it's, it's last I heard. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll definitely get on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well... Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. The, the book is amazing. Well, again, it's... well, thank you. Again, it's been totally my pleasure, and I'll look forward to uh, to part two anytime down the road. You've a mind to. A- absolutely. We we would love to have you back and where we can get into to really the, the history of the motion picture because it's something that uh, I think a lot of people tend to, to gloss over. You know, everyone just skips to Wrath of Khan, but there's there's definitely a lot going on in the motion picture as well, so... Yeah. Well, as I uh, as I think the book makes uh, clear, uh, it, it was the be all and the end all. It was the it it made all the difference. Uh, uh, without it, uh, we wouldn't have had not only Wrath of Khan but all the other sequels. We wouldn't have had all the other TV series. We wouldn't have had this uh, the film versions of the TV series, etc., etc., etc. This was the film which. Uh, as again, whatever you think of the film, for better or worse, it uh, made absolutely clear to the uh, bean counters what Roddenberry and the fans had been trying to tell them all along, which was that there was an audience out there uh, that uh, would love to see themselves some Trek. Yeah, yeah. And and, and, and the, the movie, sure enough, to nobody's uh, surprise, who had a clue, it, it, it just you know took off like gangbusters at the box office all over the world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you again for joining us. We we really appreciate it, and uh, we would love to have you back anytime. Those were the great talking with Preston today. You can find his book, Return to Tomorrow, The Making of Star Trek The Motion Picture, on CreatureFeatures.com and on Amazon.com. Well, it was fun talking with him today, but that's just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without without him and his hand guiding all of this, then, then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was and if it had not been successful then it, it you know it probably would have meant the end of star trek at that point earl gray 
Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martaban to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kittimer yep. Accords. Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about, so you would think they would have run into each other They probably least. hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the ready room. The movie series would not have relaunched and, and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of... The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, The Best of Both Worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, I've always liked the... Uh, I like that episode for... I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm -hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss Droids in Distress and Fight or Flight and everything like that, and I was just kind of watching the background, but all of a sudden I started catching myself, like, stopping working and, <laughs> and just focusing on watching. And, uh, and so it just got better and better and better. And I think I was hooked by episode four, Breaking Ranks. That's when I was like, okay, I like this show. This is good. Warp five. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, or you can just stream from the website. Just go to Trek.fm slash podcast to get all the links. Well, if you'd like to contact us and share your thoughts on Preston's book or the motion picture, you can go to Trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send a show and choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to me and Mike by email. You can also use the tab in the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using webcam's microphone, and you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and on Twitter under username trek.fm. Also on Twitter, you can find me at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, currently obsessed with Star Wars, thanks to the new trailer coming out. You can also find Mike at mumbles3k on Twitter. And under Com Track Stars, and you can find him on Commentary Track Stars here on the network and on CommentaryTrackStars.com. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring Standard Orbit to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read the, all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, even some of those famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive and Federation, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today, catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read, or that latest novel from your favorite author. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. 
We'd also like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. for being our associate producer. You can find him on Twitter at RUT8972, and we really appreciate him supporting us on Patreon. And if you want to join him in supporting us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. You'll find a list of donation levels there where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, and even be listed as an associate producer like Richard. You'll also find out where donations can go, things like covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, so check it out. Well, next week we have Andy back to, to discuss with us Assignment Earth. And it's a commentary, so why don't you go ahead and watch it and keep that in mind while you're you're uh, listening to next week's episode. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landry. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one. Hi, sir.